cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Drought. If 
don't destroy the farming areas, which happened over the last few years out the west of Canada and the States. And they can also give you floods. Either way, they can eventually get the people out of those areas into the big city areas, which are really the habitat for the commoners, the new habitat areas for the commoners. And whenever you see anything today, you're simply seeing the side effects of part of a long-term agenda, a long-term plan laid out meticulously a long time ago. I'll go into this in more detail on the other side of the following messages. you, if you stop it, or it drops in your bloodstream, 
then you become anxious and irritable, maybe even very aggressive. And we find that with people when they've stopped spraying for maybe up to a week. That makes sense because people, after a week, haven't had their daily dose of spray and uh, it's coming out of their system. They become anxious. Their own system cannot kick in with its own natural tranquilizers to take over. It takes time between that crossover. And then when the spraying starts heavily again, they're back to being laid back. So I, I looked at it from the, the other side's point of view. And since they have such big, big plans made for the whole world, remember this is a hundred years war. Look into your history books and look at what happened before in bygone times when they had their 30-year wars and 40, 50, and 100-year wars. It's the same thing that's going on today. At the end of that 100 years war is to be emerged a completely new society, nothing like today's society, a regimented, purpose-made, efficient society where individuality will be gone completely because they will have brought in a new type of human being to serve them better and that the old ones will have died off. We've already been going through this war in reality big time all through the 20th century, so you might say it's the 200 years war. The 20th century tried its best to destroy all the war that was in order to make room for all that will be, as you say, in the high Masonic circles being the big builders that they are, building societies, building cultures, destroying the old culture when it had served its purpose and bringing in the new. That's order out of chaos, a term that goes back for thousands of years, as do, in fact, the real brotherhoods behind it all that give you these little clownish ones down around you, you know, the ones that you see driving the fun little cars and parades wearing the little Shriner hats. These are the front men, although they do take good payoffs and they generally have very good positions within your community on all the important boards. But at the top of them, you have society has gone all the way back and beyond Pythagoras. The word tone and ton for weight comes from Pythagoras. He was the one that used sympathetic vibrations of musical instruments to show you an allegory of how when one mind works in a certain way with proper ideas that are instilled in them, or you train a student, then it literally can affect another the same way. That's what really was behind the sympathetic vibration, how you can start a revolution by just one person's thoughts that are put out in a proper way to the proper students. Pythagoras himself came from Egypt, and the biggest export from Egypt was revolution. Revolution, couched under many terms and many guises, many stories, such as Prometheus, of those who were illumined. Prometheus was a man, or the god, who stole light from the higher gods, stole the fire, brought it to mankind. He illuminated the world. And if you read Shelley's poem on on that very topic, Prometheus. Prometheus says, without me, mankind would have been nothing, like ants, like animals, living in caves with no intellect whatsoever. That's the high motif behind the, the real Illuminati of ancient times, not the, 
the petty Weishaupt stuff that emerged later on. The whole idea of Sirius that's taken popular form by a handful of authors, mainly from, from Britain, has nothing to do with space aliens coming along. Sirius was the star, really, the dog star. The eye of the dog follows Orion, the hunter, in the winter months. But over in Egypt, that's the height of when, when Sirius rises. They have celebrations because at his pinnacle point, when he's seen in the morning rising against the light of the sun, that's the symbol of the good student, the adept, who's ready to overcome the master, the main light, the sun itself, which is the god of the world. And he becomes higher, he becomes a god as you, you break over it. Therefore, Sirius gave us the first part of Sir, the night. The night is a Sir. Sirius rising is just a symbol of going up through the mysteries until you are adept at them all and you can overcome the master or the laws of nature. Once you have done so, you're beyond the laws of man. You're in a different category. You're untouchable. We saw the same things break out with the Cathars and Albigensians in France especially during the latter part of the Crusades. In fact, the last Crusade was against them because they also believed you could perfect yourself according to old mystery religions. And the perfecti, as they called them, those who'd risen above, above the Grand Masters, or way above them, were untouchable. They could do anything they wanted in this world because the laws were only for the profane. When Sirius rose in Egypt, the celebrations were phenomenal because it signaled that was the time when the big rains fell down Uganda through the mountains and the beginnings of the floods down the Nile would take place, bringing all the silt and the nourishment to them. That was their life. And so life was always accorded and abundance was accorded to the rising of Sirius. Nothing to do with space aliens, although the channelers today who are all following each other, since it's a popular theme, and so and since there are so many books put out there by uh, very well-financed fall fronts to guide you along that path, it's nothing to do with it at all. Use your common sense, look at your history, see what Sirius actually meant. And it's nothing to do with the space aliens whatsoever but it is to do with the, the nightly society. The dogs of war are the dogs that followed Orion across the sky. Orion is the hunter who is under many names and many guises through many religions, in fact. And the old prayers of the pharaohs to themselves, to their higher selves, was to Orion, where they said that they would ascend the pyramids until they blended with Orion the hunter because they were the, the highest hunters, the highest predators on the land themselves. Something that's never changed. We find too that even with your mind, much preparation goes into it to waylay you along many paths which are all fascinating, but none of them true. We find they put out authors, finance them over 20, 30 years sometimes, to bring out new translations to mystify you and intrigue you to do with giants and gods but had nothing to do at all with what they're telling you. In fact, 
though the other translators don't even take these guys seriously, but the effect they have on the general public is always phenomenal. Eric von Daniken was one of them years ago who brought out Chariots of the Gods, where you saw this kind of Aztec-looking character on a type of solar or stellar motorcycle flying through space. All the media backed him right away, made a big phenomenon of it, and people swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. Everyone was talking not about OJ at that time. It was about chariots of the gods. That's what they give us. Here's 7 billion people on the planet, and they tell us who to talk about. And it's quite amazing, one person and their fantasy. We're back to explain more about this after the following messages and talk about Eric von Daniken. Appreciate it. Uh, do, 
Does uh, my question, if I uh, ask it, uh, have to be on topic, or can it be a little different? Uh, well, let's see what the topic is. Okay, the, uh, if, if, if it's on topic, I was going to ask you about Joseph Farrell to see to to ask you about his does he his um, research have credibility in terms of uh, his understanding that the uh, Giza pyramids really are some kind of advanced technology, which I don't know if he's got enough. Uh, Documentation for that is the interesting supposition, but uh, um, no. Uh, the, the, what you're reading today from a whole slew of authors are rehashes of stuff that was written in the 1800s, almost verbatim. In fact, ah. they don't have to change it; they just have to put their own spice it up it. and twist it, right? And um, it's quite easy to see how the pyramids were built. We know from the air you'll see a long straight line coming from the uh, the, the pyramids generally towards where the, where the water is, the river, because they floated the stones down on big barges and they made ramps going right up and they built they built um, the pyramids from the bottom but the ramps were at the top so they could make the floors as they were going up the way and finish them. This is all well understood with archaeologists. There's no mystery to it at all. The only mystery part was the initiation and, uh, and that is, I understand the initiations that they had and that's all it was really for was initiation purposes. The pyramid itself stands for the perfect mountain. The mountain has been squared on all sides. And that's what they did on a plane was to build a mountain that they thought was perfected. However, even the main Giza pyramid, usually the Khufu pyramid, um, minus the capstone, uh, in its measurements is imperfect on one side. And that's why the capstone wasn't put on it. Uh, there's an actual imperfection there. They got their, their sums wrong, as we say. And uh, there's nothing perfect about it at all. So that the capstone wasn't put on. Interesting. Uh, can I ask you another question that's a little different? Yeah. Um, I'm interested in... See, I come from another country. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in this one individual who's very kind of an important uh, uh, person in in our country in terms of foreign policy. Uh, it's Vigniev Brzezinski. Uh -huh. you, have you ever studied his genealogy and, and uh, found out where he's from? Because I, I sense that he, his roots are really not Polish very far back. Uh, oh, probably I, I, not, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, because from what I understand, can I ask you about the uh, Khazar Empire? Is uh -huh. that okay? Yeah. I, uh, I understand that it's in, it was located in, uh, uh, let's see, uh, just western part of where Russia is now. Yeah, it's around the Black Sea area. Yeah. It was a Khazaria. Right. It's on the, uh, both uh, between the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea. And they were a kind of a wandering uh, tribe until they settled in that, in that area. And there's a very uh, uh, substantial, uh, like a kind of a mothership castle. It's, it's tremendous. It's just this uh, yeah. great castle that was really uh, for the Teutonic Knights in that area. Now, do you know if there's any connection between the Teutonic Knights and the, the Khazarian uh, Empire at all? It's not so much just with the Teutonic Knights. Um, now, you're right in the fact that they were nomadic to an extent, but within that area, within those mountains, uh, that area was their, their land. And uh, hang on the line, and I'll, I'll go into this in more detail, will you? Okay. Because the first thing Lenin did when they took over the Soviet Union was to flood that entire area and its castles to bury it.
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. Hi. Alan walked back with cutting through the matrix and beginning with George's question on Kazaria. If you go into the, the history of that area, long, long before it was mentioned uh, in any history book or, or Western history book, the, the Greeks had histories of that area about 500 BC. You find the writings of Herodotus talks about a people who lived there, but he called them the Scythians. And there were two groups of them, exactly the same as the Kassars. They had the royal Scythians and the regular people on the outside, the circular outside of the royals. Uh, there were also Scythians with the Khazars, when they were called Khazars, which also means princes or kings, actually. That's what it means. In fact, if you look at the Rosetto Stone, and, you, and you'll find it's an attribute to the Caesar written in there in Latin, uh, you'll find they used the old Greek letter of K, and you have Khazar instead of Caesar. But uh, as you go back to Herodotus, he talks about these people living in that area amongst different tribes like the Alani and others to, to the, the south of the Black Sea. And uh, later on, of course, we find people called the Khazars, where there are royal Khazars in the middle with a vast nobility um, around them, mounted nobility who rode with, with mail, chain mail, and lances. And uh, we find when Khazaria disappeared, it was never conquered. They simply melded out of there uh, the, the darker-haired ones went into Europe and uh, parts of Russia, but it was never explained where the big, huge-mounted cavalry, a cavalry that was so big they, could, they actually held off the Moor invasion. If it wasn't for the Khazars, the Roman Empire, the, the religious Roman Empire would have fallen and everyone would have been Muslim. And so the Khazars, with their vast-mounted army, well-disciplined um, fought on behalf and saved Rome. It's quite interesting that Leo the Khazar was the, the first Khazarian pope going way, way back with red hair and the blue eyes. Amazing history if you go into it. If you go into Arthur Kessler, who's one author on that, I have books here going back into the 1700s written then about them too, much more information. But what interests me is the fact that the mounted knights were never accounted for when they moved out. Where did they go? It was at the same period around the 11th century, this new people called the Normans suddenly appear in the north of France and then come up through Scandinavia and into, into Britain and conquered more, most of Europe as well. And all the nobility of today in Europe are descended from what they call the Norman, which is just a term meaning the Northmen. They came in from the north. But the, the Normans themselves... Uh, had tremendous finances backing them, a, a full World War-scale type of, um, 
logistical supply went on in their, t- their day for 10, 15 years when they were taking over what was then uh, the Western world. And uh, you'll find the coats of arms and so on that they had were very similar to what the Khazar, the Khazar nobility had on their standards. And underneath one of the main lakes, as I say, that Lenin uh, caused by flooding, he made a massive dam over one of the main castles of the Khazars. Uh, divers have gone down, brought up artifacts and statues and little amulets and so on. And you'll see pictures of these knighted horsemen who drove, who rode in formation with the lance, the long lance, and they wore chainmail, had shields and banners. So I think there's a connection between literally the beginning of the Normans and the, the exit of the Khazarian nobility, personally. And it's been well camouflaged down through history. The Khazars themselves only had one outpost outside of Khazaria. They lived on taxation. They taxed all. They were in the middle of the main trade route all the way to China, and they taxed everyone coming and going with their goods. So they lived off taxation of other peoples. They also married intermarried the royal Khazars with the Turkish nobility, but that nobility became part of the Ottoman Empire and, and ruled the world, that they're part of the world for a long, long time. And so they're all interwoven, these particular peoples, down through the many, many centuries. But the dark-haired ones uh, were sometimes called the, the black nobility. Many went to Venice and, and ran the banking industry from there. They were the financiers for the Crusades for the Roman Church, the Catholic Crusades, and they owned vast shipping, uh, seagoing ships. They rented them. Without them, the, the, the Templars and all the other groups who went over the Crusades couldn't have got across the water. All the shipping for that, the Crusades were owned by the, the Knights of Venice. So, yeah, they're all highly, highly interconnected. But uh, there's, there's a connection between the Khazars, as I say, the royal Khazars, that is, who were the red-haired, green, blue-eyed ones, and and uh, the high Norman nobility that end up being kings and queens of, of Europe. So, does that help with your question? Hello. Mentioned, yes. You had mentioned Arthur Kessler, and I I'm, uh, I know uh, he wrote that one book. I think it's like the Thirteenth Tribe. Yeah. But but there's, I think he's got another book which is really focused on. Uh, because they're uh, empire. Do you, can you recommend one? Uh, not from that era. The, the older ones were, were far more explicit because archaeologists were going in in the 1800s. Amateur archaeologists were going in and finding much more of these artifacts before the Royal Society took over all archaeology and basically hid a lot of it from the general public. Uh, but when you get the old books written at the time with people who went on uh, went over there with uh, their own resources, their own financing. Um, they took many early photographs in the 1800s, late 1800s of the artifacts that they were finding. And it, it is very surprising. I see the first thing that Lenin did, the first uh, big building project he went, uh, undertook was to flood these areas where the nobility's castles of the Khazarian Empire were. They, what they also had in common with the, the nobility of Europe the kings and queens of Europe, is that they, had, they would go to a summer castle, a winter castle, spring and fall castle. They made this circular tour every year, exactly as the royal families of Europe do today and always have done. So they have an awful lot in common. 
No, uh, just a, a quick... Uh, ...to find the, the better books. Just one thing. I want to thank you for your, uh, your great knowledge of the source of words, etymology of uh, history, and uh, that's very impressive. I have your books, and I'm just starting to read them and uh, look forward to, to really getting into them. Thank you. I Thanks. really appreciate oh. it, Alan. Bye-bye. Bye now. But yeah, people who want my books should go into them. They're different from the regular ones where you just get downloaded with, with supposedly facts and figures. I try to make you think using a different technique so you participate in what you're reading. That way you, you remember it and your mind starts to work. You start to analyze that which you see for the first time rather than simply parrot the words. Because the wording in the language is coded. It was the English language especially really was manufactured in the 1500s, and whole teams of high priests were involved in the making of the language to make the international business language of the future, as John Dee said 500 years ago. And they were successful in that, but they also put in the coding, and you'll find it in some of John Dee's writings, especially the one where he's calling down spirits and raising the dead, nothing to do with that at all. It was to do with showing you coding, just coding inside there. It was the same with Alistair Crowley, with his Book of the Law. Uh, forget all the exoteric stuff. It's the graphs you can build within the book itself. If you make a graph of it and connect the dots and the lines together and connect the words that come out of it, you get the real messages. Well, John Dee was exactly the same. And that's how it's done. And to get the new language into circulation, they changed, the, the, they gave you the King James Bible at the same time and Shakespeare, uh, who introduced supposedly 160-odd thousand words into the language. In other words, they created the language at that time. Prior to that, if you go back into the, the writings we had uh, from some of the, the, the few authors we were given access to, they, they actually spoke and wrote in Old Saxon and German uh, with a little modification just by being separated from those particular countries, but they were Saxon-German in essence You'll find that with uh, Pilgrim's Progress in the original version, not the later updated English version. So read Pilgrim's Progress and you'll see what I'm talking about. And nothing has been left alone. And, and, and we, we, we tend to think in short term. We live short lives. Our parents struggle through lives too. They race through lives. We all do. And therefore we can't imagine that there are people who pass on formulas and knowledge from archives down through the centuries and plan the future. But that's exactly how it is. If you want to control and always have control, you must always plan the future. Going back to the Normans, the first thing they did when they went into countries and took them over was to force the public to use money to begin with. That was the first thing. And then use that money to tax back from them the taxation they, they used for their big building projects. That's their MO, build building projects which are huge, massive cathedrals, massive roadworks and highways. Even back a thousand years ago, they made highways between the cities for all their coaches and their armies to travel along, go back even further where they had the system before, even the Normans, and you'll find the Romans did the same thing, the, the pre-Christian Rome. They built roads all over countries. They built them right through England, long straight roads where they could transport the centurions quickly to their target, the same thing as NAFTA is doing today. That's what they're going to be used for in the future, folks, believe me. I have no doubt about it at all. And they use your money and your labor 
to do it all, always planning ahead. When Ronald Reagan mentioned the Star Wars project, he wasn't kidding, and yet people forgot about it so quickly. The Star Wars project wasn't just to shoot down other other missiles or other satellites from other countries. Its main purpose through NASA was actually to set up the communication system that will control your ID cards, which have active chips, coming up next year, and also to eventually track implanted chips in humans. We were putting up the satellites 20 years ago in preparation for today. They always, always work ahead. And so as I keep telling people, there's always a good reason given to the public, and then there's a real reason which you're never told. But you will see it manifest down the road. So the world is is planned, and rich people down through the many centuries never disappear. These families never disappear. They would build up a new empire to move into, and when they pulled out with their families and their money, the old, the old countries they left went back to a third world status. Just look at uh, ancient Greece, what happened there. It wasn't because they were conquered. It was because the big elite had moved out and taken all the wealth with them. And then they did the same thing in the latter days of Rome. And they did it all down through the centuries through Europe when they made their bases to Holland and then to, to England and then to the U.S. And now they're putting their bases back over in China to take over for the next century. Now, I have another guy on the line. I missed the name. It's my fault there. Uh, are you the, on the line? Who are you? Mike. Okay. Are you there, there Mike? Hello, yes, Mike. Hi. Uh, th- hi uh, thanks for taking my call. I really enjoy your program. Yeah, where are you get a really good perspective, overall view of what you know history is about. I'm a big history buff. Yeah. From what I understand, the Normans were basically uh, the Vikings that had settled in the in the Normandy Peninsula. Then they made a deal with King Rollo. It was yeah. King. Was it was the Viking King Rollo that uh, made a deal with the uh, uh, with the King of France? Said, hey, you know, mm-hmm. we'll give you this fifty tons of silver in the Normandy Peninsula, just leave us alone. Isn't that how the Normans came about? That, that's, the, that's the story they'd like to have you believe, but it doesn't, it doesn't tally. If you look at all the, the, the portraits of kings and queens from the Norman times onwards, uh-huh. you'll find most of them, most of the, the, the barons and the lords, etc., were very dark hair, curly hair, and oh, yeah. brown eyes, and, uh-huh. and uh, they spoke French, remember, too. Yeah, that was traditional. Even the court of England they spoke French for centuries, not English. Sure. And you'll find the occasional one here or there was was more blonde, but it didn't tie in. They didn't use uh, any of the Scandinavian languages. They didn't have the customs of the Scandinavians either. But we know this thing: the, the Khazars had one base outside of Khazaria. The one base they had was in Sweden. Oh yeah. Even in the, the sixth century A.D. Yeah. What okay. is now Sweden? So, so there's a connection there. They, they came up through uh, those countries and used that as a jumping-off point, but they certainly were not related to the Vikings. Well, gee, I, well, I guess I, you know, I guess I got that one wrong. But that's just what I read in the, in the history book. And if the Anglo-Saxons, they, you know, for the uh, Battle of Hastings, they just got came marched from up north after walloping this huge Viking army. 
and and a lot of their forces were decimated. If, if they wouldn't have had to deal with the uh, with the Viking uh, uh, battle at mm-hmm. Stanford Bridge, yep. then you know uh, the Normans wouldn't have stood a chance. Yeah, the way I understand it. But yeah. I tell you, one group that's really fascinating are the Scythians. Yeah, it's hard to find books on them, but I mean they are probably my favorite barbarian people. Yeah, they did great, they, great they horsemen. Had, uh, they had quite uh, amazing sacrifices too. They used to. Um, one of the tests for the king was to go into a boiling vat, vat with a horse, and not emerge until the horse was actually boiled alive, and he was still alive. Then <laughs> he came out. Yeah. And and uh, yeah, they, they found graves where Kurgans in uh, south southwest Russia where they had like you know dozens of slaves, hundreds of horses sacrificed. Yeah. They were great great horse archers. Uh, they had this religion that they had like a, a eunuch who was like a male witch yeah. who would drink uh, bl- uh, blood mixed with hallucinogenics and prophesize. Yeah. But th- let me ask you a question, and I, I don't know, I don't take up too much time, get too far afield, but what do you make of the people that say that the, um, uh, that the Caucasians, that the Anglo-Saxon peoples or descendants of the lost tribes of Israel? That no, that, the people... that, that really was put out uh, profusely on the orders of the British Crown in the, the, the 1800s, they caught on to this idea of trying to convince their own soldiers, their middle class that were getting sent across to India and Africa and other parts of the world, that if they could believe that they were the lost tribes, they would be more efficient in, their, in what they were doing, uh, bringing the system to the world. And, and their main, um, the main part that they touted was uh, that the blessing that God gave on tribes of or at least on on, on uh, to Abraham that there, his seed would be, would be as the, the, the sands of the sea and uh, the stars in the sky and since Judaism was too small wide, uh, worldwide it had to be the British so they had to convince the, the British public that, that this was true and the, the crown paid for all these books to be written it's, well so that's all a PR stunt yeah everybody that the dice are loaded Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed Everybody knows the war is over Everybody knows the good guys lost Everybody knows the fight was fixed The poor stay poor The rich get rich That's how it goes Everybody knows. Hi, Alan Watt back with Cutting Through the Matrix, trying to make sense of some of the nonsense we've been fed down through the centuries and definitely in the last hundred years or so through a common education, which gave us more disinformation than reality. Now, it's true that the Vikings did go all the way to the Volga, and there's no doubt they would interbreed at the high elite levels with other elitists in that area. But there's no doubt about it, in my mind, that, uh, as I say, the Normans who came in, especially when they came in from France as well, and, and floated whole forts across, wooden forts, prefabricated forts, never been done before. Big builders they were, and they spoke French. And they had supply routes going all the way back through Europe and beyond Europe into other countries where I'm sure their ancestors had lived at one time. You'll find even with Robert the Bruce, his name was Robert de Brucey, 
the guy who became the first king of Scotland, supposedly fighting the English, only to give us taxation after a common country was formed. Before that, they didn't have a common country, and they were quite happy as they were in reality. If it hadn't been for the English invading, there'd have been no Battle of Bannockburn and no nation of Scotland. And again, it made no difference anyway because the kings always intermarry with the queens of other countries, and Scotland was given away in a marriage. So they housed that, eh? Given away a whole country in a marriage, quite the dowry. And that's how the people are treated down through the centuries, no different than today. So dig into your histories, as I say, and you'll, you'll find some amazing stuff. Don't be fascinated by the modern books put out there to give you all the usual, the space aliens and, and the big giants and all the rest of it. Quite fascinating stuff. It's good stuff for late-night talk shows where you let your mind go into imagination, into a form of dreaming. But uh, it's not the actual truth, and we've got to keep fact from fantasy when we're dealing with reality, especially when our lives are hanging in the balance, and so are the lives of, of those to come. We're living in a war situation and going back to the spring. Notice how there's a lack of birds in the country now. I've noticed that for four years. The spring is killing the little birds off, the very small ones especially, the larger ones, the crows, the carrion types, and the buzzards are doing pretty good. But the smaller birds are, are absent pretty well, one or two here or there. The forest should be ringing with birds now, and they're, they're not. It's been like that for four years. They die off first. And also they have the modified seed from all the crops they peck away at, which also kills them. And that's the other reason for it. So they're getting attacked from the air and from the seed, as are we too, by the way. But they say it's not over to the fat lady sings. And at least more and more people are waking up to the truth. They're getting beyond all the disinformation specialists. They're getting beyond the panic stages. And they realize that, that once critical mass builds up, then the big boys at the top will have a hell of a lot of answering to do to the people who know how to ask the questions and what questions to ask and demand to be answered. It's time that those who pretend to serve us are put back in their place before they do us in all together. So from Hamish, my dog, and myself up here in Ontario, Canada, it's good night, and may your God or your gods go with you.